3: Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we are, of course, continuing with our coverage of the coronavirus pandemic. Every day, every hour, the situation in the United States becomes even more dire. The number of deaths in the U.S. still soaring, we are now up to 846. At this time last week, that number was 149. Now we're up to almost six times that, more than five times that, and we could still be a long way away from the worst. A leading epidemiologist, one advising the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has estimated that the peak of deaths in this country will be three weeks from now. And if you look at the trajectory on the graph, it's almost too horrible to contemplate what that will mean in three weeks. Of course, confirmed cases continue to surge. Now more than 61,000. As we've been telling you for weeks, the U.S. is seemingly following the trajectory of Italy, though the U.S. is about 10 days behind Italy, which has so far seen the most deaths from coronavirus throughout the world. Today, a top official with the World Health Organization told CNN that even though the U.S. has the potential to eclipse Europe and become the next global epicenter, quote, there is still time to turn it around. But only if, only if Americans isolate ourselves and only if the government is able to conduct widespread testing to identify who has it. A glimmer of what passes for good news these days came today in New York when Governor Andrew Cuomo announced the rate at which people are being hospitalized in that state is slowing, suggesting to him that social distancing and other steps the state is taking are working. CNN's, CNN's Shimon Procupes is live for us at New York's Jacob Javits Convention Center, which has now been converted into a makeshift hospital. And Shimon, uh, the numbers Governor Cuomo cited are, are just projections, so uh, there's no... I mean, New Yorkers still need to heed caution.
4: Certainly, Jake. Uh, people, everyone across the, the world, the nation needs to heed uh, some caution and they need to be careful still. There is that piece of good news that the efforts that are being conducted here in this city, in this state, all across the nation is working. And they're basing that off of models and predictions uh, that health officials, state officials, have been looking at, and what they're finding is that the rate of hospitalization uh, has somewhat decreased, uh, meaning that when they looked over the past few days, uh, some of it has decreased. And here's what they said about it, that on Sunday, uh, that as of Sunday, there was the rate of hospitalization was doubling every two days. And then on Monday, the rate of hospitalization was doubling at every 3.4 days. And then Tuesday, the hospitalization uh, rate was doubling every 4.7 days it's doing for them exactly what the governor has asked he wants to slow down the rate of hospitalization because there is a lot of concern over the needs that people are going to need the things that they're going to need in the days to come and that is the ventilators there's a big concern over the ventilators he's still stressing that that this state still needs those extra ventilators the other thing the governor of course mentioned was that this state has tested more than any other state and they're proving uh, that that has been an effective model that the more people they're testing, the easier it is for them to track where some of the positive cases are. Uh, And then, of course, there is concern because no matter what, the hospitalization rate is still increasing and one of the biggest concerns here for the state is the number of patients, the number of people that are being treated in the intensive care units. It's over 800. That is the big concern. Obviously, that number is expected to grow. And that is why, Jake, they need those ventilators. And the governor said they're working on getting those ventilators and they're going to keep working until they have enough, Jake.
3: All right. Shimon Prokopez at the epicenter of the coronavirus epidemic uh, or pandemic here in the United States, New York City. Uh, Thank you so much, Shimon. Outside major hotspots such as New York State and Washington State, There have been a surge of cases and deaths in the next front lines of this battle, states such as Louisiana, which now has the third highest death rate from coronavirus, nearly 1,800 cases and 65 deaths. I want to bring in CNN's uh, Diane Gallagher. And, Diane, uh, more than half of the EMS personnel, emergency medical services personnel in New New Orleans, were exposed to coronavirus. and, And there seems to be a tie here to Mardi Gras. Tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, so Jake, those EMS workers, they're all still reporting to work. They're still responding to calls while taking their temperature twice a day and monitoring for symptoms. According to the mayor's office, one fifth of the city's EMS workers are showing symptoms but at least at this point they don't have any confirmed positive cases. Now, you mentioned Mardi Gras. That this is a theory from Governor John Bell Edwards that uh, basically he says with people coming in from all over the country, from all over the world uh, to celebrate in New Orleans uh, that, that quote, a fair amount of coronavirus was seeded in that area uh, during the festivities. Now. Part of why he has this theory, Jake, is because the first confirmed case of the virus in the state, well, that person tested positive 13 days after Fat Tuesday in the New Orleans area. Now, again, this is just a theory from the governor, but this is a state that is desperately looking for help and answers right now. Uh, He's trying to get his citizens to take it seriously. They do have a stay at home order issued for the entire state.
3: And Diane, President Trump today approved a disaster declaration for Louisiana. Uh, What is the state up against in terms of resources and health care capacity?
1: Look, Jake, it's bad in Louisiana right now, and and part of the reason why it hasn't received the same attention is because these numbers have jumped so quickly so recently. I've been following this all week, and uh, just from Monday, they've jumped from 800 to 1,800 cases across the state. They've been dealing with clusters in retirement centers, and to give you an example from Louisiana's largest healthcare system, that's Oxnard Health, 80% of their patients in the ICU are on ventilators on a normal day, Jake? That's 30% of the patients. Right now, they're working to try and get more ICU beds in their hospitals, they say. Uh, They put it in order of 200 beds two weeks ago. They're starting to get them in. So they're moving uh, patients who are not affected by the virus to specialty hospitals, uh, to orthopedics floors, so they can separate them from all of the patients with the virus they're seeing. They're also looking at their own employees right now. Now, look, they've got 25,000 staff members So far, 60 have tested positive, but hundreds of others are showing symptoms. They're trying to get tests out as quickly as they can. And just like everywhere else in the country, there's a need for PPEs, masks, anything they can do right now. Right now, Louisiana is in trouble and and everybody there is sounding the alarm, Jake.
5: All
3: right, Diane Gallagher, thank you so much. Also bracing for the impact of coronavirus, rural hospitals across the United States, ones that are already struggling to stay afloat. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. And Elizabeth, there there is a concern that some of these hospitals may even be forced to close. Why is that?
6: Well, you know, rural hospitals, unfortunately, have been closing um, in recent decades because they're under such financial strain. And this outbreak puts them at even more of a strain, Jake. And I'll tell you why. These hospitals, a lot of their revenue stream is outpatient services or elective inpatient services. Uh, and so they've been told in many states, stop doing them. So they've complied and they've stopped doing them. So their already low cash stream is even lower. So they're being told prepare for this, get more ventilators, you know, let's get moving. But they don't have the they didn't have the money to do it in the first place. And now they really don't have the money to do it. And, Jake, some of these hospitals, these are hospitals that have, say, one ventilator. These are small hospitals. Most of them have not been hit hard. Some have like the one in Albany, uh, Georgia, has been hit hard. Many of them have not been hit hard yet, but they're looking what happened in Albany, Georgia. They're looking at New York City. They know that they could be next.
3: What, What can these hospitals do now?
6: You know, all they can do is a lot of them are looking to their state governments and saying, help us out. We don't you know, we're not some big hospital system that has money sort of stashed away for these situations. We were barely open before. Now we're having more struggle. So a lot of them are turning to the state to the state governments.
3: Most of the cases right now have been around major cities such as New York City, such as Seattle. Is it fair to say that hospitals in the big cities are are better equipped to handle coronavirus?
6: Sure. I mean, certainly this is a shock for even the largest New York City hospital, as we've seen Governor Cuomo talk about the lack of equipment, the lack of ventilators, etc. But it's especially um, it's, it's an especially hard blow if a rural hospital gets hit because they had so much less to start with. And I think that's something that that's really important for us to remember. Also, it's really important to remember when we say rural, sometimes these rural hospitals are not that far from a big city. All it takes is for one person to go on vacation. They could start an outbreak.
3: All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. The the $2 trillion stimulus package is hitting a last-minute snag. What that could mean for your family and your bank account then, when working from home means working from the White House. What aides are saying about President Trump's new reality. Stay with us. Thank
4: you very much.
3: Sticking with our health lead, the massive $2 trillion stimulus package may now be in jeopardy with three Republican senators flagging an issue they have with the bill's draft. It is the largest deal ever of its type. From what we do know about it, it would provide $1,200 checks, perhaps soon in the mail for Americans who make $75,000 a year or less. But those who make more than that could also see some money, and even more money will be available to those filing for unemployment for longer than normal CNN's Manu Raju was on Capitol Hill, and Manu, uh, these three Republican senators say that the bill might now incentivize companies to lay off workers because the unemployment benefits are, are too generous. Explain what's going on here.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what they're saying. They're making an argument. They're contending it's a drafting error, but this is not a drafting error. This is actually negotiated by Republican senators, the White House, and Democratic senators who believe uh, that it's essentially necessary. They don't think that it would lead to layoffs. In fact, they this is a temporary uh, enhanced unemployment benefit for workers who do lose their jobs. But the Republicans are arguing here that they believe it would be an incentive for employers to get rid of their employees and could drive up the unemployment uh, crisis in this country. And they're demanding changes to this language. Those Republican senators, Ben Sass of Nebraska, Tim Scott of, of South Carolina, along with Rick Scott of Florida, and South Carolina Republican uh, Lindsey Graham all went to the mic just moments ago demanding changes. But the question, Jake, is how far are they willing to take this? Will they drag this out for days, which they could do under the Senate rules and prevent final passage for several days? They are not saying they're willing to go that far. I pressed all of them about that. Uh, they said they want a vote, an amendment vote, to try to change this. So if that amendment vote goes down, which it probably will, will they allow for quick passage of this measure? That is still uncertain. It's possible they could still get to final passage, but that's just one of the number of wrinkles that continue to come up through the course of the day as they try to push this massive, far-reaching, historic measure through Congress immediately, Jay.
3: It certainly complicates efforts by Republicans to blame the delay so far on, on Democrats. But let me ask you, let's assume that ultimately uh, these Republican senators drop their objections. Democrats control the House. They have to pass it too. Um, Can't they vote on this right now?
2: They're having their own issues as well because some Democratic members have concerns about some of the elements in this proposal. Well, they haven't actually seen the final bill language. I should make that clear, Jake. It actually has not been formally introduced yet. There's bill text circulating, but the formal introduction has not been released yet. But I just uh, caught up with one congressman, the freshman Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who told me that she is willing to actually force House members to come back to Washington to vote in person, if necessary, to pass this package. Now, that is not what Nancy Pelosi wants to do. She wants to pass this by voice vote, get it done quickly. But she says if, if necessary, she's willing to do that because of her concerns with the bill. So we have to see what ultimately if the bill addresses those concerns. Jake.
3: Now, Pelosi very reluctant to bring 435 members of the House of Representatives Back to Washington, D.C., given the fact that a number of members of Congress uh, have tested positive for coronavirus. Uh, Manu Raju, thank you so much. Let's uh, talk about all this with uh, CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. Julia, always good to see you. Uh, The stimulus plan uh, provides, as far as we know, $350 billion for forgivable small business loans. Uh, These companies are still going to need to go through an application process before getting a loan. Is this aid, assuming that this passes within the next day or so, is this aid going to come fast enough for these businesses?
7: It's a critical question. Remember, I spoke to the head of the retail federation in the United States. It represents one in four employees in this country. He said to me he's got many businesses that he represents. They have no money now. They need cash. So if this takes even a week, Jake, it could make the difference between life and death for some of these businesses. And, of course, for the employees that work at them. It needs to happen immediately, as soon as possible.
3: Passenger airlines uh, could get $25 billion in aid from this bill. In exchange, the airlines will not be allowed uh, to furlough workers uh, or cut pay uh, or buy back their stock all the way through September. Uh, Do you think that's a good enough exchange?
7: It's the only deal they've got, so they have to deal with it. Aid is the right word. There's also going to be an equal sum for loans as well. Remember, industry bodies have said that this sector in particular, the hardest hit so quickly could lose up to 250 billion dollars. So when you compare these amounts, you question whether it's going to be enough. My guess is, one day soon, some maybe this year, we'll start traveling again. They can take this money and they can scale it up, and that's going to be critical.
3: And Julia, this bill also prevents any businesses owned by President Trump or anyone in his cabinet or Congress from from receiving any of this aid, right?
7: It does. But I should be clear, it also includes the vice president, government workers, their in-laws, their children, too. The key here is restrictions and strings attached. And that is a similar theme with that $500 billion corporate loan, too. Within 72 hours, we're going to know what they wanted to borrow it for, what they're doing, what the terms were. Oversight is the key here with a capital O.
3: And, Julia, the stimulus package theoretically will put money in the pockets of Americans, both through the $1,200 Uh, in terms that they're getting back, but also uh, more unemployment uh, claim money. Uh, But if so many of us are staying inside and so many businesses in towns and cities have been ordered closed, then even if you get this money, you can't necessarily go out and spend it. What good will it do in terms of stimulus?
7: I'd argue that people can spend online. So this is one and part of this but you know most of the people that have come to me they've said look we're coming to month end rent payments mortgage payments car payments that's what they're most worried about right now we've we've given them cash infusions hopefully with the benefits step up as well but we haven't overall at the national level stopped the outgoing so it's for buying basic essentials Jake But if they don't need to spend it in the short term, the hope is that they can perhaps go out and spend it when we come out of this economic sleep. And that will help kickstart the recovery.
3: All right, Julia Chatterley, CNN Business Anchor. Thank you so much, as always. It's not all bad news. There are also some hopeful signs about this pandemic. We're going to talk to a medical expert about some promising data. That's next. We are hearing stories about children across the United States who have been diagnosed with coronavirus. In Georgia, a 12-year-old girl is now slowly waking up from sedation. Days ago, she was fighting for her life after having tested positive for coronavirus. In San Diego, we're told two infants have tested positive. And in Alabama, an NICU nurse, a NICU nurse, tested positive, leading to a newborn being put into isolation as a precaution. Joining me now is Dr. Ryan McGarry. He's an ER physician and co-creator of the Netflix series Pandemic. Uh, Dr. McGarry, good to see you as always. We tend to focus on the risks for people over 60, people with pre-existing conditions, but this, this can seriously harm children
8: too. It sure can. Um, look, this is a dangerous virus. We've seen encouraging data that suggests that for whatever reason, someday we may know, uh, children, infants are spared more than influenza, Uh, which we have a lot more experience and knowledge with. That said, uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, has a very random variability. Unclear right now, uh, in particular, why it makes some people so sick so quickly and others not so quickly, often with mild illness. Very random. I've never seen anything like that in my career I think a lot of my colleagues feel the same.
3: And some some positive news, what posi- passes for positive news these days. Um, scientists say that the virus, the coronavirus, does not appear to be mutating. Explain what that means and why that is, you know, a silver lining in in this
8: horrible storm. Sure. Well, viruses are 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 complex. They can often mutate and change. And if you're looking for a vaccine that makes the virus a moving target. It's hard to make an antidote to something that's changing all the time. But if it's stable, that means that there's a target we can shoot for. And so some of my colleagues who are are pulling 24 seven shifts, literally tag teaming each other in another lab, uh, I think are clinging on to this that from what we can tell so far, Stability is a good thing. If this thing doesn't mutate, that's helpful to us down the line for a vaccine.
3: Well, we've seen New York become the epicenter uh, of the coronavirus pandemic in the United States. The spokesperson for the World Health Organization told CNN this morning that there is still time to turn this around and prevent the U.S. from becoming the epicenter of the world. Do you agree, is there still time?
8: And how do we turn it around? Well, we've heard a lot of war analogies lately, Jake. And you know, if physicians like myself, here at Keck of USC, my colleagues, my nurses, if we're the front lines, um, then I would argue that all of, of you folks at home uh, watching now uh, are, are sort of our air force. You're our support. You're part of this battle too. And imagine being on the front line, knowing that there are uh, sort of protectors above us and around us. That's what you're doing by uh, following these guidelines to self quarantine uh, and have safety at home right now. Without you, Uh, we've lost our backup, and it's really important. So yeah, I I see a silver lining if we keep following these directives. That's a great thing for all of us here on the front line.
3: Can you describe what the scene is
8: like inside the emergency room where you work this week? You know, I want to quote one of my residents here at Keck Medicine of USC who said to me, you know, I think a lot of physicians right now are going back to their medical school essays to remind each other of why we're doing this. We're going back to the core Of of really what it means to be a physician, what it means to be a caregiver. There's a lot of compassion there, but there's also a lot of fear and anxiety among us. Of course, like I said, this this is a virus that has a lot of variability, uh, and I think that's something that is is scary. We've never seen a virus that one person on your left might give some you know runny nose to one person on your right is on a uh, breathing tube within 24 hours. That's that's very scary for us.
3: And of course, one of the biggest fears is that. The United States is tracking about 10 days behind Italy, and we're seeing doctors in Italy dying uh, because they didn't have enough protective equipment. Uh, that is also a problem here in the US at hospitals from coast to coast. Uh, where are things on that front at your hospital?
8: So USC, we've, we've done better uh, in the last week. Uh, part of that is the sharing among departments in the university. Uh, part of that has been an incredible outpouring from the community. Uh, we've had everything from uh, uh, friends, uh, family, and and even the the show Grey's Anatomy donated some of their uh, uh, warehouse you know gear uh, to hospitals. And so currently, I, I, I can speak here at USC. Uh, we're doing better. I think Jake, when this is all over, as a system, as a country, as a values question, uh, I would say uh, submit to you. Look, if the Super Bowl was on Friday uh, and there wasn't enough beer. I, I think you and I would agree that there would, it would, it would arrive in time for the Super Bowl, And I think we need to ask ourselves system-wide here, uh, if this were ever, ever to happen again, uh, uh, uh what that says about us as a country, uh, and about how we care about medical professionals, first responders, those who are tasked with taking care of us.
3: Absolutely. There needs to be, uh, like there was after nine 11, some sort of commission to examine what went wrong and how to be better prepared. Last question. Uh, the world health organization. World Health Organization is, is warning that relaxing the do, social distancing restrictions that are in place all over the, the country, that, that could cause a resurgence of cases. Um, president Trump said that he would love to have packed pews on Easter Sunday. Uh, Dr. Fauci has said that's an aspirational goal, and he's told the president he needs to be flexible. How, how realistic do you think that idea might be, a packed pews on Easter Sunday?
8: Well, uh, look, I, I want to give the president the benefit of the doubt that, of course, I mean, I would be hopeful for that. That'd be great. However, uh, I would say that, again, using a war analogy, not that uh, my grandfather was in World War War II. I certainly have not been. But if I was in one of those boats on the way to Normandy and I was the front line and you told me as I was going into battle that the Air Force is not showing up today. (laughs) uh, you, You know, I think that's a tough message to swallow for those of us on the front line. So I would hope that we stick to the battle plan and encourage all aspects of the team here, including those of you at home, uh, uh, to not let down our guard yet. We need you from the front line. We really do. And we need you, all
3: of you health care providers on the front lines. Thank you so much, Dr. Ryan McGarry. Please send our best to all the doctors, nurses, and uh, everyone working at the ER. We appreciate it. Will do, Jake. Thank you. We've got breaking news from the Pentagon on U.S. troops and coronavirus. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. Back with breaking news. Defense Secretary Esper is now requiring all U.S. service members stationed overseas or scheduled to deploy to stay in their current locations for the next 60 days because of coronavirus, according to three sources. CNN's Barbara Starr is breaking this news for us at the Pentagon. And Barbara, how many service members are going to be affected by this?
5: Good afternoon, Jake. This is going to affect, we are told, about 90,000 service members and, of course, their families as well. Think of it as a freeze in place order. If you are overseas, you will stay there. If you are here in the United States and scheduled to deploy, you will not freeze in place for 60 days. There's a couple of reasons for this. First, perhaps, is the military has not flattened its curve at all. Every day we are seeing an increasing number of cases in the U.S. military. The trajectory for the Pentagon is still very much upwards. But in addition, sources are telling us they're finding increasing problems getting troops into some of these countries overseas because they, of course, these host countries, have their own restrictions. They require people to go into quarantine quarantine Troops coming home have to go into quarantine in the United States it's becoming a muddle that they 're trying to see their way through, so essentially a freezing place to try and deal with all of it. But for many troops. This will, in fact, be another hardship. They were scheduled to come home. They might have already shipped their household goods home. Their children might already be looking at enrollment in different schools, in new cities, at new military bases. So this is going to be very tough business to work their way through it, Jake.
3: Barbara, are there any exceptions to this?
5: Well, I think it will become very clear. Uh, The logical one are Navy ships. They are at sea. Many of them will eventually pull back into port in the United States. They can't leave them out at sea forever. So they will come back. That is expected to be one exception. We are waiting to see what exceptions may be made for troops on the front line. Troops in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, perhaps, that were scheduled to come home. What will happen to them? drawdown in Afghanistan that is expected to continue. So we need to see how the Pentagon plans to deal with those forces, Jake.
3: All right. Further hardships for people who give a lot to this country already, service members and their families. Barbara Starr, thank you so much. Sure. And as we pass 800 deaths and more than 61,000 confirmed coronavirus cases in this country, it is worth remembering what President Trump said almost one month ago today.
9: When you have 15 people, And the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero. Uh, That's a pretty good job we've done.
3: Tomorrow will be the one month anniversary of that statement from the president. That was clearly a false sense of security he was providing the nation in keeping with the many lies he has told the nation in order to downplay the virus and its risk and oversell the Trump administration response with more than 61,000 cases in the U.S., far more than 15, far more than zero there is really no way of knowing how many lives were affected by that false sense of security that the president projected. I want to bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins live for us from the White House. Caitlin, sources tell you uh, that the president is feeling increasingly isolated at the White House and questioning, eager to have life return to normal.
10: Yeah, he feels like he's been cut off from the outside world, much like the rest of the nation and other parts of the world feel as they are responding to this staying home more. The president working from home is a little bit different because, of course, he's working from the White House, but his day-to-day life has changed, too. He's doing teleconference calls with governors instead of meeting with state officials or lawmakers in person. The day-to-day staff here has changed as well, at least in the East Wing. They've pared down from the staffers that are typically here to abide by those social distancing guidelines, keeping employees who are not essential away from the the residents of the White House as they are moving on with their day-to-day. And, of course, the president is still governing. They're still focusing pretty much solely on this pandemic at this point. But Jake, these meetings also look a lot different for the president because he's meeting with this coronavirus task force. He's moving through the day to day. And, you know, they've gone from really focusing on the health aspect where we're increasingly seeing the president focus on the economic impact of this and whether or not they are going to be able to lift those guidelines. He says, hopefully, by this date of Easter, a date he has doubled down on, despite what you're hearing from not only health health experts, but also economists who are warning that just is not possible and it's inadvisable in their opinions. So the question of whether or not he's actually going to move forward with that is still a big one before next week. But we should note, Jake, that in these internal meetings, what we're hearing from sources is that the vice president often turns to the medical experts in the room when they're talking about what steps to take next when the president is often relying on the economic experts instead. And that's why you see him bringing people like Larry Kudlow, his top economic advisor, out to that briefing yesterday. So the question, of course, is still is whether or not they're going to be able to meet that Easter deadline that the president wants that we should note today. The press secretary said she wasn't sure if that was a date the president had informed his task force of before he announced it yesterday.
3: All right, Caitlin Collins, uh, thanks so much. We're going to check in with you in the next hour or two. Uh, Companies around the world are trying to rethink how they do business. We're going to talk to an executive from one major, very recognizable American corporation that's shifting gears to help during this pandemic. Stay with us. Many businesses are stepping up to help fill the shortage of medical supplies, including Anheuser-Busch, which you probably best know for Budweiser Beer. But the company is now using its production lines to make hand sanitizer. The company also announced today it is working with its sports partners to set up temporary blood drive centers in arenas and stadiums. Joining me to discuss Cesar Vargas. He's the chief external affairs officer for Anheuser-Busch coming to us live from his home, it looks like. Uh, Cesar, thanks so much for joining us. Can you explain to us how you were able to rework the system to make hand sanitizer and how you're going to distribute it.
9: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jake. Um, the first thing I'd say is that, look, we're all facing this, this enormous public health challenge, and, and we're all in this together, including Anheuser-Busch. We're focused on, on a few key areas. The first is taking care of our employees. We're going to make sure they have the support and the resources they need to, to stay safe and healthy. We're also going to keep providing some joy and some comfort and some normalcy to people at a time when when it's desperately needed through our our brands and our products. And then the last piece is what you mentioned. We want to make sure that we're stepping up to to help serve and support our communities in need. So we have some unique capabilities, uh, some relationships, and some reach uh, that we like to leverage at times like this uh, when our communities need us. So on the manufacturing side of things, we announced a couple days ago that we're going to be producing and bottling hand sanitizer uh, at several of our breweries. Um, we're going to be sending that hand sanitizer, first of all, to our own employees, make sure that they have the supplies they need. But then we're partnering with the Red Cross, and we're going to be donating that hand sanitizer through the Red Cross to the communities that need it most. And then the other announcement that you, that you mentioned today Um, is about really uh, redirecting some of our sports and entertainment investments to really help the Red Cross as well as those on the front line in the battle against COVID-19. So that includes a $5 million donation to the Red Cross. It includes working with our partners at all the major sports leagues and some of the sports teams individually so we can donate stadiums and other venues that the Red Cross can use for blood drives. Red Cross told us that they've had to cancel somewhere about seven thousand blood drives as a result mm-hmm. of COVID nineteen. So it's a it's a real need on their behalf. And then we're going to open up our own facilities. We have tour centers mm-hmm. and our breweries in Maryland, New Hampshire and St. Louis, Missouri. And finally, we're going to donate some media time to the Red Cross so that they can run public service announcements to bring some awareness uh, of this issue and inform people on how to how to donate blood.
3: So that's that. all sounds very laudable. Let me ask you, um, when we talk about Anheuser-Busch, obviously we're not just talking about the production and bottling of beer. Uh, We're also talking about partnerships to get your products into stores. Uh, These are jobs that require people to show up to work. Um, How are you protecting these employees and are you uh, committing to not laying anybody off and to providing uh, paid medical leave to anybody who needs it?
9: Well, I said, uh, I said earlier that the very first thing that we're focused on is our people mm-hmm. and making sure that they've got the support they need at a very challenging time for, for our industry uh, and for our country. Um, and that will always be our, our primary focus. The situation is very fluid. Um, we're challenged like many other industries and, and companies um, as the external environment continues to, to change. Um, what I can tell you is that we have... Um, most of our people working from home, we did that well before the government required us to do that. But, of course, now that's in line with government guidance in, in most of the United States. And then we do have some people who are essential to our operations, um, whether that be in our breweries um, and those people that are transporting beer uh, to our to our retailers. Um, and those people are continuing to be on site. But there we go. We put in place a number of precautionary and preparatory measures. We've gone above and beyond even what the CDC recommends uh, to make sure that when they do come to work, they're operating in the safest environment uh, possible. And of course, our operations are are expressly permitted to, to continue. And across the country, I think you've seen that governments are trying to make sure that people continue to have access to basic goods and, and services. And so we're trying to make, to make sure that we keep our products on the shelves as well.
3: So uh, Congress is obviously working on finalizing this proposed $2 trillion economic stimulus package. Uh, will Anheuser-Busch seek to benefit from that? Do you need some of the aid from the government?
9: Well, we're, we're like a lot of other companies, a lot of other industries. Um, we're in a very difficult environment, a lot of pressure uh, on us. And look, there's 2 million people across the U.S. that, that rely on the beer industry in, in some ways, shape or form. Uh, for their livelihood, so it's an important industry, more um, important employers, and so the work that the government is doing to to make sure that there is the right amount of support for uh, people that are directly impacted, and and for those companies that are that are trying to maintain a steady workforce, that's that's very very important. Um, so we're going to work with governments as best we can, but that really doesn't change our focus around our people, around providing some comfort and some joy. To, um, to our consumers, and then also stepping up and, and helping our communities where they need us.
3: Have any of your employees tested positive that you know of?
9: Well, we're part of our we're part of the community, Jake. You know, just like everybody else. So of course, we're not immune from that. Um, so yeah, I think we're we're relatively lucky to say that um, we've had very few employees directly impacted, and we have some amazing people internally that are uh, doing all the right things, working in conjunction with local health departments. To put the right protocols in place to give them the support they need. Um, I'm also pleased to say that those that were impacted are all on the on the road to recovery. If not, if not fully recovered, so um, we're doing okay. But but of course, we're impacted just like everybody else.
3: Okay. Well, I hope you commit to paid sick leave for anybody who needs it. I appreciate your time, uh, Cesar Vargas, and and thanks to Anheuser Busch for the steps you're taking.
9: Thanks so much,
3: Jake. While social distancing may mean no parties, no pinatas, communities across the country are finding ways to make sure that their loved ones still get to celebrate, albeit while keeping a safe six-foot distance. In Missouri, Beckett Carr rang in his fourth birthday with a parade of well-wishers from his neighborhood. Beckett is battling leukemia and is, of course, then one of the most vulnerable to infection. In Rhode Island, 92-year-old Alfred Vicoli was also treated to a surprise birthday parade. He says he was overwhelmed by the gesture and is lucky to have family and friends, Americans, trying to pull together and make the best of all of this. Today, more stunning numbers across the country. 11 states now reporting 100 new cases each. That's just today. We're going to check in with Dr. Sanjay Gupta on that and more. We're going to squeeze in
0: one more quick break. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.